The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Jenna Reed. She is a science and policy analyst at the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, based in Washington, D.C., She researches political and corporate influences on science-informed decision-making, working to inform the public about issues where science is stifled or obscured, and to ensure that federal, state, and local policies are based on rigorous, independent science. Before joining the Union of Concerned Scientists, Ms. Reed was a researcher at the public interest non-governmental organization called Food and Water Watch. She also holds a Master's in Environmental Policy and a B.A. in Biology and Psychology from Lehigh University. I thought it was interesting that in part of her work, she was involved with the Environmental Protection Agency looking at rivers and streams, and she was based in Philadelphia. So welcome, Jenna. It's wonderful to have you with me. Thanks, Melinda. Happy to be here. So I was really interested in how you got from degrees in environmental policy, working for the EPA, looking at river and stream quality, how did you jump from there to food policy interest? So as you very well know, there is an interconnected quality between the food system and the environment. So a lot of my work was done in looking at the impacts of pollution on streams and wetlands and exploring how that pollution and environmental degradation can affect people living in the area. And also, it got me really interested in thinking about how policy changes could be made to improve the quality of rivers and streams. And then I went to grad school for environmental policy. I learned that there was a big world of issues out there just waiting to be tackled, including the food system so when I went out and was looking for a career path, I ended up very interested in, in the food system and, and my place in it. Mm-hmm. I know it's so interesting to see how everything is connected and how we're one with our environment. So I'm so glad you made that reach. We need so many more people doing food system work who have this environmental policy and biology background, in my humble opinion. And I'm also curious to know what led you to the Union of Concerned Scientists specifically. Yeah, so the Union of Concerned Scientists, and specifically I'm I'm a policy analyst with the Center for Science and Democracy, which is a really interesting section of UCS. And UCS has been around for a long time doing some super great work on climate and and clean vehicles and nuclear issues as well. But the Center for Science and Democracy is a really interesting space that is looking at how science informs policy in a very broad sense and looking for where that process actually breaks down and then investigating what it is and why that science is being affected and and how that impacts policy decisions ultimately. 
So because of my interest in the food system and seeing where those those like breaks between science and policy have happened before, I got really interested in, in seeing how corporate interference and political interference has changed the discussion to one that used to be very science-based, evidence-based, to one that that is, you know, you can just simply pay for or fund to get the policy solution that you're looking for or that a corporation is looking for. Yeah, exactly. Well, full disclosure, I am a member of the Union of Concerned Scientists Science Network. I am very impressed with this organization. People can learn more from the website at www.ucsusa.org. I wanted to speak with you today in particular because sugar has been in the news. And in 2014, the Union of Concerned Scientists put out a fabulous report called Sugar Coating Science, How the Food Industry Misleads Consumers on Sugar. It was an excellent report because it talked about how much the U.S. food industry spent on advertising. And, you know, you look at some of the top players, PepsiCo, for example, General Mills, Nestle, Kellogg's, Kraft, Mars, Coca-Cola, Hershey's. You, you see that the majority of the foods produced by most of these food companies are heavily processed. And they're just the kinds of foods that dietitians like myself say, if you want to be healthy, eat less of those foods. Now, this October 2016, the Union of Concerned Scientists is going to have a brand new report called Hooked for Life, How Weak Policies on Added Sugars Are Putting a Generation of Children at Risk. And you are the lead author on that. Correct. Okay, in doing this report, my biggest question to you is, were you surprised at anything? I was actually surprised. So we went into working on this report as sort of a continuation of our work from 2014, where we looked broadly at the sugar industry and the tactics that they employed to undermine policy. And those tactics included attacking the good science, good independent science that had already been out there, spreading misinformation by by producing or funding their own science, deploying industry scientists into the field where they would come up with results that were very clearly influenced by the profit-driven industry where they came from. And then eventually, through all of those venues, how the policy was influenced. And so that report, those actually there were two reports. There was another report called Added Sugar, Subtracted Science that came out in 2014 also. And so through those reports, we really unveiled some of the corporate influence that went into the some nutrition policies and where we've seen the lack of movement on to restrict added sugar intake in Americans' diets since there has been mounting scientific evidence over the years. And so we started working on this report on children specifically, ages from birth to five, you know, sort of as an exploration of what's the research that was out there already on the consumption of added sugars in this age group and to look at the policies and whether or not they were really following the science closely. And so, you know, part of the report goes into how much sugar exactly is in kids' foods. And it was actually, it's it's pretty alarming to think that a lot of the foods that are currently on the market contain very, very high amounts of, of added sugars. So, I mean, as you mentioned, processed foods make up a majority of our diet. And of processed foods, about three quarters of them contain added sugars. 
And added sugars, I guess we should probably define what they are. So added sugars are, are not naturally occurring in a food item. They're added in. So this is something that has sort of emerged with the industrialization of the food system. And when processed foods came on the market, they were generally not super palatable. So in order to flavor and make them taste better, food companies, manufacturers began to add sugars to products which has resulted in processed foods that, like I said, contain, most of them contain added sugars and and in very high amounts. And this doesn't discriminate based on age. So young children are exposed to the same, if not more, added sugar as adults. Yeah. So that was definitely very alarming when we were putting this report together. So when you were looking at these different processed foods, do you remember seeing one or more where you sat there and you went, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I think the the places where I was I was very interested in seeing the amounts were in foods that generally you would think moms or, or parents would think are healthy, like granola bars or yogurts, even smaller serving yogurts like gogurt and things like that. Things that are really marketed to kids, yeah, and young children as well, and they actually do contain very high amounts of sugar. And in the report, we have a table that shows, that sort of juxtaposes kid versions of adult foods. And really, they have the same general amounts of sugar. It it isn't very different. Manufacturers aren't making any grand attempts to reduce amounts of sugar for younger children, even though the, the impacts of excessive sugar consumption in those age groups is dark. Yeah, and this is such a complicated issue on so many levels, and I want to maybe pick apart at some of the areas that I think are so confusing. So if you're going to go to the grocery store and you want to have some yogurt, it's a great choice. Yogurt is considered a probiotic. It's got bacteria in it that are healthy for our guts. We certainly recommend it. There is some naturally occurring sugar in dairy products. There is less in yogurt, less in cheese, because that lactose has been used up by bacteria in making those products. But when you go to the store, it's very difficult to know how much of the sugar that's in that product is naturally occurring or a part of the lactose or milk sugar that would naturally be there versus how much is added. Now, I believe it's in, is it 2017 or 2018 when manufacturers are going to have to list the added sugar, the the amount of sugar that was specifically added by the manufacturer? Do you know what the date for that is offhand? Right, yeah. So that would be summer of 2018. Okay. So until then, we're still living in this gray zone of, huh, what's naturally there and what's added. But what I always tell folks who are in the supermarket is you've got to take the grams of sugar and you've got to divide it by four to get teaspoons of sugar. And I remember when the labels were being discussed and there was a comment period, and I remember having a conversation with someone in industry and I said, I really want to have teaspoons of sugar on there. Consumers have no idea what a gram is, or most of us don't, and we certainly don't want to have to whip out our calculators and be doing math in the grocery store. And one of the industry representatives actually said to me, that would be too confusing to consumers. And I thought, no, I don't think so. I think consumers are smart enough to handle having teaspoons listed on the label, but we will not be seeing that. So 
we've got to go to the supermarket with a calculator. Yeah, so I'd just like to point out that that was a great victory to get the added sugar line on the Nutrition Facts label, which happened in in May. The FDA released their final rule for the new revised Nutrition Facts label, so we were really excited that now under total sugars there will be a line that says includes X grams of added sugar. Because, like you said, before summer 2018, we're left to guess by looking at the ingredients label which added sugars were added and maybe how much is in the product that you're about to eat or buy for your family. So we really did consider that a great victory. And we had a lot of Science Network members and activists who were extremely helpful in, in getting the word out to FDA that, that, that was, this was a very important science-based rule that should go out and be strong. And not only will it include added sugars, but it will include a daily value to give consumers context. But you're right. A teaspoon amount would have made complete sense for consumers to give them context. I mean, most people don't think about grams in the same way that they think about a, a teaspoon. It's a, it's a much more relatable measure for most people. And it's interesting to me that you said the industry representatives said that it would confuse consumers because that is one of the industry arguments that is used broadly about the nutrition facts label. It's something we actually wrote a fact sheet called Transparency in Food Labeling that we released in this past summer. And we explained the ways that industry has fought this rule so hard to add the line for added sugars because their argument was that a line of telling people how many added sugars are in the food product would be confusing to consumers when that just isn't the case. And we saw so many comments that went into the FDA for this rule from public health experts and public health organizations saying that this would be a great measure and an excellent opportunity for public health and for individuals who are interested in their own health to know that how, much, how many added sugars they're consuming on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a, an extremely long and hard-fought battle for something that seems like a right-to-know issue. Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Jenna Reed. She is the lead author on a brand new report from the Union of Concerned Scientists called Hooked for Life, How Weak Policies on Added Sugar Are Putting a Generation of Children at Risk. All right, let's also now talk about, you had mentioned this, we're going to have a reference value. I can tell you as a dietitian what I normally rely on. I don't look to the dietary guidelines. I look to the American Heart Association recommendations because I think they are the most stringent and easy to understand. I tell people that for a woman, the limits on sugar are six teaspoons of added sugar per day, and for a man, it's nine. I know that other recommendations are 10% of total calories, and there you go again. We have to be getting the calculator out. And then we have to go from numbers of calories to grams of sugar. It's too complicated. I like the teaspoon measures as an educator. But if you start looking at some of the added sugars, you can see that your limit of six teaspoons or my limit of six teaspoons and my husband's limit of nine is very quickly consumed. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the sort of the discrepancies between the 
federally, uh, the federal guidelines for added sugar intake, which is sort of a new thing because until just this past year in 2015, the dietary guidelines did not have any concrete limits for added sugars. That is a new thing that came in 2015, thanks to really strong recommendations from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee advising that consumers ages two and over consume no more than 10% of daily calories from added sugars, which was, it seems kind of crazy that it, it took so long to get that concrete measure after the the science behind added sugars has been mounting for so long. Exactly. Um, however, it is, it's, it's an important one to have. But as you mentioned, the American Heart Association, their recommendations, which have been around, I think the most recent update to the policy was in 2009, would actually put the cap more at 5 to 7% of daily calories for men and women based on you know, activity level and, and daily calorie intake. So, you know, that's a, that's a, a real difference. And there are, the, the World Health Organization has recommended that people consume no more than 10% of daily calories, but actually 5% of calories would be even better for um, improved health outcomes. And the United Kingdom's health board has come out and said that 5% of daily calories should should be um, from added sugars for the best public health outcomes. Very so, interesting. You know, like you said, I mean, it, it sort of varies, and some are more stringent than others. And we would argue that the U.S. government should really be thinking carefully about how much added sugar they are requesting that people are consuming. And the American Heart Association actually just came out with um, their guidelines for children. Before now, they had not had any, but in, I believe it was August of this year, they released them. And it's interesting because the the cap for children is set at 25 grams, which is about roughly six teaspoons. And that would be for, you know, age two all the way up to age 18. Right. That's the same as me and you as, as adult women. Right. Yeah. And this contrasts greatly with the Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommendation, right, that that it should be 10% of daily calories because for an adolescent around 18 years old, that number is, is would be a lot higher than 25 grams. Right. Um, but so for a younger child, it would be lower. Right. Yes. And so what we really we think that some of food policies aimed at children aren't actually coherent and don't offer adequate guidance for parents. As I mean, this, as you can see, the discrepancies are definitely there. And interestingly, uh, most of the food aimed at young children has nutrition labels that are based on adult diets. Mm-hmm. So that can be problematic when looking at sugar limits. Right. You know, We could go in a couple of different directions here, but our time is going to be our limiting factor. I want to just mention a concern of mine based on an interview that I did with Susan Swithers, who's a food scientist at Purdue, looking at how cereal packaging, for example, might be deceiving to parents because it might say less sugar. And what they do is they put in artificial sweetener to keep that sweet taste preference high. 
And what she explained is that really what we need to do is not asking ourselves, you know, is a diet soda better than a regular soda? The idea is we need to affect our palate so that we're not always wanting the same level of sweetness. So that might be another story for another day. But I think it's something that people have to navigate in the grocery store. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you mentioned, I mean, food companies have taken advantage of this, of a, a child's preference for the, the taste of sweet at a very young age, loading their, their processed foods with added sugars and setting children up for the, a proclivity to added sugars throughout their lives. And this, this is it's very disheartening, and not only do they set them up by having foods that have this much sugar in them, but then they continue to keep kids on the hook by using marketing tactics and, you know, marketing through new ways like online marketing, which is a new thing for parents that didn't used to be around when I was a kid, at least. Um, right. I know. You know. So now toddlers and really, really young children are looking at screens and looking at even YouTube channels that have advertising for sugary foods. And the the regulation in that sphere is, is it's, you know, sort of non-existent at this point. Right. I want to jump to another topic that I want to commend you for including in this report, and that has to do with racial and social injustice. And I'm just going to quote here from your excellent executive summary, which sums it up like this. Children of color and low-income children are put at particular risk They are victims of a one-two punch of being targets of junk food marketing campaigns and also having less access to healthy food options. And then you also have a section on food banks and what kinds of policies are instituted there where they will or will not accept foods of low nutritional quality. And I can tell you that I went to the food bank in Atlanta. It was part of a trip that we had with our Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And, you know, Coca-Cola is based in Atlanta. And so the food bank has to walk a very fine political line because they, of course, they need all the support they can get. But did they tell one of their biggest donors, you know, we don't really want to accept your food. It's too high in sugar. And your report talks about that. Right. Yeah, it's a tricky line to walk. But one, I think that's that's very important because of, you know, what you just quoted. But there are children of color and low-income children who have limited access to healthy foods, and several of the, the government programs that help to remedy this problem don't necessarily have the best standards in place to protect young children from high amounts of sugar in their foods. So if, if you know, there, there are several different recommendations that we have in the report that could improve or create policies that encourage healthier foods, and discourage the sugary and sweetened foods and beverages that are currently making their way into food banks and also sort of some of those federal programs like SNAP and and WIC. Mm -hmm. In the section on food banks, you specifically mentioned Feeding America and their recommendations. Tell me a little bit about Feeding America and how we might be able to influence policies through food banks. Sure. So Feeding America is, is a nonprofit network of food banks, um, and so it's not federally run, 
And so they, the sugar standards that they currently have in place are sort of are recommended, um, and they they got some of the recommendations from the from an industry run uh, children's food and beverage advertising initiative. They actually cite that in the guidelines, which was interesting to me. Instead of citing you know the dietary guidelines exactly. for Americans, for example. So you know there there are ways that food banks can improve upon Feeding America's recommendations, and that this has already been done. So there are places like Washington, D.C. just recently released a policy where the, the food banks, the capital area food bank, will not be accepting donations of sugar-sweetened beverages and other um, sugary foods, which is great. And it's a, it's a, it seems it's a simple way to encourage healthier eating, to make healthy food the easier choice for people who are hungry and, and food insecure. Mm-hmm. Also, the Food Bank of Central New York has insisted on a no-soda, no-candy policy. And I happen to know that the Food Bank in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, has also done a lot of policy work. So I think it's an excellent point that you raise in this report. Let me put the ball in your court and ask you to pull out anything from this report that you want to make sure our listeners know about. Sure. So this report has as many recommendations from, from several different stakeholders, but you know, one of our one of our actions that that all of the listeners can can sort of take action on now is currently there is no uh, disqualifying level, so there's no limit on the an amount of sugar that can go into a product to put a health claim on that product. So, you know, a very sugary food on the front of the package, it can say you could have a health claim like you know healthy or all natural or has low levels of calcium or, you know, even though it has very high levels of sugar. So we are, um, we have a citizen's petition that we would ask all of the listeners to sign on to to ask the FDA to create a limit for added sugars as it has done for sodium and total fats and saturated fats. There's no reason added sugar shouldn't be on that list because of all of the science that has shown its, its many negative impacts on public health. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I was surprised to read that. I just assumed that if a manufacturer could put healthy on their label, you gave a great example of, you know, if you put any kind of heart health claims on a package, you know, low in cholesterol, low sodium, then you have to have agreement among those different factors, but nothing for sugar? Right. That, that's the interesting thing, and, and it sort of makes you think about about how the sugar industry and the food industry has been able to keep this type of these limits and this type type of policies that would restrict sugar consumption um, out of federal policy for so long. Mm-hmm. We need many more reports like this. I want to just remind our listeners that the name of the report is called Hooked for Life, released in October of 2016, How Weak Policies on Added Sugars Are Putting a Generation of Children at Risk. There are lots of ways that consumers can use this publication to work with policymakers, say, at their local school district, if they're working with their community food banks. It's just a really good tool for activists. In closing... I want to thank my guests. We have been speaking with Jenna Reed. She is a science and policy analyst in the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And the website for this, is there a particular website just for Hooked for Life, Jenna, or do we want to simply have people go to the Union of Concerned Scientists website? You can go to the Union of Concerned Scientists website, and the action that I mentioned, you can go to www.ucsusa.org slash fix the label. Okay, wonderful. And I will provide that in our listing. Jenna, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks, Melinda. Thanks, Melinda.